We are in Ephesians chapter 4, looking at verses 26 to 32. I have chosen to address those verses that deal with anger in that particular section. So there are two verses that I will be uh, not addressing tonight in that section, Ephesians 4, 26 to 32. Introduction. It's very important to keep in mind that we're in a portion of Scripture that is addressing unity in the body of Christ and the way in which we are to promote and maintain that unity. So this is a discussion as to how anger is to be handled when a person becomes angered at a fellow believer. I think that's the, the primary emphasis of this particular portion, and that's how I'm going to be addressing the issue. Anger that would be demonstrated towards a fellow believer. So I begin by saying anger is a dangerous zone for us to be in. We must be extremely careful when we are angry that we do not sin. The theme verse is Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So be you be angry and do not sin. So we're going to look at what the exhortation is not and then what the exhortation is. Well, the exhortation is not to never be angry. Anger in and of itself is not sinful. God, who is holy and never sins, does become angry. God's anger is a righteous and holy anger. That which provokes God's anger is sin. 1 Kings 15, verse 30. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned, that he made Israel to sin. And because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. So God's anger is provoked at sin. So our anger is not sinful when it's provoked by rejection of sin. When there is good grounds for us to be angry. I would submit that anger that is not properly provoked, that is being angry for the wrong e reasons would be sinful. Uh, for example, simply to be impatient, to be irritable, to be in a bad mood. And someone does something and uh, you get angered at them. Uh, say you have a two-year-old child. You're trying to lay down and, and uh, get some rest. And that child gets up and is uh, playful and, and wants to do things. And it's easy to get upset. It's easy to get irritable. Uh, we're not condoning that kind of anger. And I don't think that's what this passage is addressing. I believe it's addressing righteous anger. So even when we have a righteous anger, that is that we're provoked for the right reasons, namely because of the sin that we see around us and the effects it has on other people, even then we have to be careful that that righteous anger does not become a sinful anger. So what the exhortation is. The exhortation is to not allow our anger to be manifested in a sinful response. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. All right? Don't let your anger lead you to sin. Uh, don't let your anger 
be uncontrolled. So how are we to guard against having a sinful response in our anger? Well, we're to deal with our anger quickly. Ephesians 4.26, be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The longer we are angry, the more likely we are to sin. Uh, The longer we stay in that state of anger, the more difficult it is for us to continue to act righteously, holy, justly. The reason the longer we are angry, the more prone we become to sinning is because the evil one will use the occasion to promote evil rather than to reject evil. God's anger against sin is because of the unrighteous, unholy character of sin, and God's response to sin is try to alleviate it, try to correct it, try to uh, bring people into a state of righteousness. That certainly is not the goal of the evil one. The evil one doesn't want to see people restored. The, people, the, the evil one doesn't want to see people forgiven. The evil one wants to destroy people's testimonies as often as he can, whether that be the individual that has sinned or the person who's trying to restore them or the person who's trying to address that sin in their life. If the evil one can cause evil to come out of that situation, he's delighted. And so we have to be very, very careful that what results is not evil, but is righteous. That must always be our concern. And secondly, the evil one will seek to destroy the unity in the body of Christ. There's nothing that will destroy unity quicker than anger. Anger, by its very nature, is divisive. It brings a barrier between the person who is angered and the object of that anger or or wrath. Those two people are not in sync. They are not in a bond together. It is a difficult situation. So we have to be very, very careful because the evil one would love nothing more than to bring disunity, division in the body of Christ. So our anger needs to result in unity as opposed to resulting in disunity. That's the emphasis of this particular section. So we are to reject acting in a sinful manner in our anger. Our anger is to reflect our new relationship to Christ, not the old manifestation of anger before we came to Christ. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Their anger is associated with that which must be put away. And we've been working through this passage, and you know that there's been this admonition that there's to be a change in our character. We are to be acting differently than what we were before we came to know Christ. And so there is an unrighteous anger that all of us have experienced before we came to know Christ. There is an anger that seeks to destroy, seeks to harm, uh, as opposed to seek to heal, help, and restore, all right? 
there is a unrighteous anger that seeks to condemn. Condemn. For many unrighteous people, the only time they use God's name is to pronounce damnation on someone else. They will say, God damn you. That is the most hideous statement a person could ever make. To want to see a person experience an eternal damnation forever and ever. What a horrific idea and thought. All right? As believers, we are to be seeking people's eternal salvation. We're to extend to them forgiveness and want them to experience the peace and joy of God. So there needs to be a real difference between the way anger is manifested after we come to know Christ from that which we were demonstrating before we came to know Christ. So theme, practical ways in which we're to be angry but not sin. First, a consideration of the sinful associations with anger that we need to avoid. All right? What is it about anger that, that we need to be on guard against? What is it that when we are angry that we begin to manifest a sinful response as, as opposed to a holy response? Well, the first is we are not to hold a grudge against anyone. Let all bitterness be put away from you. So number one, we're not to hold resentment against anyone. That is, we're not to develop a bitter taste against those whom we have treated, who have treated us unfairly. To be bitter is the, the idea of to alienate that individual. Uh, we have a resentment. We want to stay away from them. We don't want anything to do with them. So, you know, that anger can result in simple things such as distancing ourselves from that person, just, just avoiding them. And when we do come encounter with that person, giving them the cold shoulder, uh, making them know that, that they're not welcome in our presence. We just may not smile at them. They may say hello to us and we refuse to say hello back. Those kind of things that just demonstrate that I got a problem with you. And it may not be verbally said, but the person gets the idea you're not happy with them. And there is a failure to desire to make things right. A desire to make things right. We should always long for reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should always want to make things right between us, not for a barrier to exist, not an enmity, if you will. Our brother in Christ, our sister in Christ, should never become our enemy. They're always our brother. They're always our sister. They're always a part of God's family, our family, and we're going to be together in heaven. And when we're in heaven, we're going to hug. So we got to work things out between, between us. We can't be bitter. The second is we're to avoid outbursts of anger. Let all bitterness and wrath, wrath, be put away from you. 
The word for wrath connotes a furious outburst. It's an eruption, like a volcano that spews out its lava. It's a graphic picture, but it's verbal diarrhea. It's just unloading on someone. And we all know what, what that is. Uh, there's even a common vernacular to say we go off on somebody. To lose it, all right? To fail to exercise self-control, to just explode allow things to fester. And that's one of the reasons why we ought to be quick to resolve issues that exist between us. We should not let the sun go down upon our, our wrath because when we don't, there is a tendency to let things fester, to let things boil inside until we just finally lose it and we go off on somebody and give them a piece of our mind, as it were. So we have to, to guard against those kinds of outbursts. Third, we're to avoid emotional as opposed to rational responses. Here, anger has to do with that which is to provoke us to anger is due to an, an uh, that should be inappropriate hatred. Uh, oh no, excuse me, let me say this right. That which is to, provide us, to provoke us to anger is a hatred of sin. Anger is not to be provoked by our own sinful desires or frustrations. Okay? So we need to be angry for the right reasons. Not because somebody cut us off when we were driving. Not because somebody and you can fill in all the stupid reasons why people get angry with each other for unjust cause. So we, we need to guard against that. We always need to be asking ourselves, what is it that I'm really upset about? What is it that, that has really gotten up my emotions? Is it really about the fact that I am concerned about the person's sin and the consequences of that for themselves and for others and the glory of God, or is it much more a, a personal matter of which I'm just displeased with them? So uh, an emotional as opposed to a rational response, uh, as opposed to a good reason. D, we're to avoid shouting. Clamor, clamor, uh, making a noise, all right? So that includes shouting, that includes slamming doors, that includes pounding fists on a table, anything in which you're just trying to demonstrate you're upset because you're venting. So any kind of expression that gives voice, if you will, to the anger is inappropriate. It, it, it needs to be, again, righteous, holy anger. Not shouting at the top of our lungs, not slamming car doors or doors at home, not putting our fist down on a, a table. Nothing that is demonstrating an outward frustration with the person or situation. E. We're to avoid saying things that will destroy or cast aspirations, aspersions, 
on a person's reputation. Verse 31. Slander be put away from you. We must be extremely careful not to jump to conclusions and attribute sinful motives to actions when we do not know the facts. That's just the beginning. But the name-calling that exists when people get upset, get angry. Okay? You fool. And the scripture warns about calling someone a fool, all right, that, that, uh, that is worthy of, of judgment. Uh, we, we need to be careful that we don't just let these words come out, you know, like, like fool, like moron, like, you know, you stubborn mule, all, all kinds of aspersions that are, are just a way of putting somebody down, trying to make them feel small, uh, trying to make them feel unworthy, all right, and, and to just simply, you know, have this sense of, of shame, all right? And it's, a, it's really that. It, it's really trying to shame people. And F, we're to avoid seeking to harm an individual as opposed to helping or restore an individual along with all malice. Malice is that aspect of wanting to do harm, whether that be physical harm. And so in your anger, you reach back and hit that person, whether it be emotional harm by calling them names, et cetera, et cetera, whether it be slander and you're trying to harm their reputation. Anger so often seeks to harm as opposed to help, to encourage, to help that person deal with the sin in their life in a positive way. Anger, in that sense, is judgmental. It's looking to bring consequence. It's looking to bring hardship to the individual. So a consideration of the righteous response that we're to follow What is the righteous response? Verse 32. First we saw the negative, here's the positive. First, be kind to one another. Literally, we're to be gracious to one another. The word that is translated kind here is the word for grace. To be gracious. To be gracious. Grace, remember, is unmerited favor. Treating people in a way that they don't deserve. So often, anger is about getting even. Anger is about making people pay. Anger is making sure no one gets away with anything. Grace, on the other hand, is not about making people pay. Grace is not about worrying that somebody's going to get away with something. Grace has 
a desire to extend to that person a kindness of which they are undeserving, of which their behavior has not earned. And yet, you treat them graciously. See how different that is from the cold shoulder. See how different that is from that which we've been describing previously. Secondly, we are to be compassionate and merciful to each other. The word tender-hearted, tender-hearted, compassionate, merciful. We are to take into consideration, and remember, we're talking about being provoked to anger for the right reason here. We're talking about being provoked because of the sin of another person, not because of our own impatience and, and our uh, own frustrations, etc. We're talking about when the person is absolutely in the wrong for what they have done, it says that we're to be tenderhearted. We're, we're to be compassionate. We're to be merciful. We are to take into consideration the misery that is in their life because of what they have done. We're to think about all the consequences that that person is experiencing. The difficulties it's creating at home. Maybe some of the turmoil between a husband and wife or parents and children or other people in the church. It is to move us. I would submit to you that it's to move us to tears. As we feel sorry for that individual. Knowing how awful they must feel. They, they are a brother or a sister in Christ whom the Spirit of God is dealing with, who's bringing conviction upon them, who is struggling against sin in their life. We should have compassion. We ought to be able to relate to that. And think about our own shame, our own sadness, our own problems that we've experienced, and be able to identify with that. Third, we're to be forgiving of one another. We're to be forgiving one another. Our God is a forgiving God. God's love for us is not fickle, nor should our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ be fickle. Psalm 103 verse 11 reads, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. We should marvel at God's steadfast love for us. There is a flower that's used to depict Calvinism. It's tulip. 
It's TULIP. I submit to you, our acronym shouldn't be DAISY. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. As brothers and sisters in Christ, when it calls us to love one another, that's at all times, in all situations. Even when we're angry. Because what should be motivating us in our anger is the sin, and so we should want to deliver that person from that. We want to help them to overcome that. We want to minimize the fallout of that sin. We don't want it to create even more disruption and disunity in the body of Christ. We don't want it to spread. And we don't want there to be ever-increasing consequences. We want that person to experience joy and peace and happiness in their relationship to Christ. That should always be our response. That should always be our thought. Secondly, we remember that our sins have been dealt with by God. Verse 12, for as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Moving on quickly, we're to be compassionate even as God is compassionate. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Compassion. Compassion. Unfortunately, the scripture refers to even as earthly fathers, Sometimes we discipline our children in anger, meaning that we let other things enter in and we discipline in an inappropriate manner. We discipline them, we punish them simply because we're in a bad mood, not justly and righteously because of what they have done. And the scripture tells us, those whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Those whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Which means he disciplines us for our own good. I'm sure you have heard the adage when a parent disciplines a child, uh, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Everybody hear that? This hurts me more than it hurts you. Is that the way we go to our brother and sister in Christ when we have to confront them? This hurts me more than you. I hate to do this. I hate to do this. And to what steps are we willing to go? How far are we willing to be compassionate so that grace can be extended to them? This hurts me more than it hurts you. Verses that we know so 
clearly and fully, and yet somehow can fail to, to reach us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But God commended his love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Talk about compassion. Talk about giving yourself so somebody else can be forgiven. Think of God who gives up his son. Think of his son who lays down his life while we are unrepentant. While people are mocking him at the cross. While people are raising their arms in rebellion against Christ. Who says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We're to have compassion. Understanding. Care. Comfort. Extending peace. For we must remember that we are all prone to sin, and so are others. Psalm 103, 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. God remembers our weakness. He doesn't have to remember his weakness, but he remembers ours. He knows how incapable we are of living righteously. He knows our struggles. He knows our harms. He knows our hurts. And so, A, the sin of others should sadden us. But the sin of others should not disillusion us. We shouldn't be amazed when other people sin. For we know the scriptures all so well. And we shouldn't assume that a person is a hypocrite. And just totally false in all that they have professed and all their desires for, for righteousness and, and say, well, that's, that's just fake. That's just put on. This person never really cared about God or his honor or his glory. Also, you know, we look at the patriarchs. We look at the heroes of the faith. A David. An Abraham who lies. And we can go on and on. We don't have to have a litany of people's sins for us to realize that we all sin. And we can never forget that when we're dealing with another sinner. We all sin. We all struggle. And we all have private areas of our lives that we'd cringe if people knew about, including myself. So we should never delight in the downfall of a brother or sister of Christ. We should lament it. For the sake of Christ, for the sake of their family, 
for the sake of that person. And we ought to respond with, thank you, Lord, for the grace in my life that has spared that public awareness. We should sympathize with the struggle of sin. Romans 7, 15 to 19. The writing of the Apostle Paul to which we can all identify. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's not an excuse, that's an awareness. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, in myself. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. One of the great frustrations in life is to sit back and examine our behaviors, our conduct, our thoughts, our attitudes, and try to answer the question, why? Why did I ever say that? Why did I ever do that? Sin is stupid. The way of the transgressor is hard. There's no good reason to sin. And we all know it. And I'd even say we all believe it. And yet we all struggle against it. And there are many, many times when we're convicted and we know what we're about to do, we shouldn't do, and by the Spirit of God and by His grace, He brings it to our mind and He tells us that we shouldn't do this. And the next portion we're going to see grieving the Holy Spirit, and that is just ignoring that conviction and going ahead and doing it anyway. And then when the fallout comes, we just shake our head and say, I don't, I don't know what came over me. I don't know what I was thinking of. I can't tell you why I did it. I hope you can identify with that. And I hope you can extend that to our, your brother and sister in Christ. Yes. We need to be repulsed by sin. But we need to handle that repulsion in a godlike way, in a godlike manner, in a righteous way, in which we are demonstrating compassion, grace, forgiveness, restoration, that which brings unity to the body of Christ. 
that which promotes righteousness and holiness in each other's lives. That which gives glory to God for his ability to deliver us from sin. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us. Help us in our anger. And if we're going to be honest, Lord, most often our anger is not a righteous anger. It is not a holy anger. It's an anger that's more akin to that of the world, of that before we were saved, than the anger of a holy and just and righteous God. Lord, may we always remember what holiness and righteousness looks like. That is compassion. That is giving of ourselves so that others can be forgiven. May we never cease to marvel that you gave of your son and your son gave of his life in order that we could be forgiven and brought in a relationship to you. Lord, may that be our heartbeat. May that be our attitude. May that be our response. Lord, guard us in our relationships with each other. Draw us closer to you and to each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.